Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, December 23rd, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's top stories. A CDC report finds U.S. life expectancy is at its lowest in 25 years. Fiji's military is called after a disputed election. Zelensky invokes the fight against Nazi Germany in a request for aid. The IRS's mandatory presidential audit policy faces scrutiny. A House GOP report blames security failures for the January 6 Capitol riots. Israel's Netanyahu announces the formation of a new government. A UN resolution calls for peace in Myanmar. Associates of FTX's founder plead guilty to criminal charges. Asia's El Chapo is extradited to Australia. And the WHO says it's very concerned over the COVID situation in China. In a new report, the U.S. life expectancy is the lowest it's been in 25 years. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC, Axios, and Fox 9 Minneapolis. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention reported on Thursday that the U.S. has reached its lowest life expectancy since 1996, with an increase in death rate of 5.3 percent between 2020 and 2021. COVID-related deaths had the largest death rate increase, followed closely by accidental injuries, which included overdoses. Death caused by liver disease, kidney disease, strokes, and heart disease increased as well. Life expectancy for American-born people now sits at 76.4 years and is down 2.4 years from 78.8 years in 2019. This is a vast divergence from 20 years of steadily increasing life expectancy in the U.S. Mortality rates rose for every age demographic except for infants younger than one. The largest increase in mortality rates were among those ages 35 to 44, the group most affected by overdoses. Nearly 107,000 Americans died of drug overdoses in 2021, according to the CDC's final figures. The number of overdose deaths increased by 16% in 2021, up from 92,000 in 2020, continuing an increasing trend over the past few years. The trend of increasing overdose deaths is part of a wider cause for concern as life expectancy in the U.S. decreased for the second consecutive year. Adjusting for age, Drug overdoses are up over 50 percent since 2020. Thanks, Melissa. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts, and those were the facts. Here's the narrative spin, starting with the pro-establishment spin from NPR. COVID, the leading cause of reduced life expectancy in the U.S., has brought devastation upon the nation and the entire world. Americans have sacrificed for over two years as they battle the global pandemic, and it's disheartening to see its effects. However, with advances in science and resilience, the country can reverse this trend. There's an establishment critical narrative from American greatness. Politicians may choose to focus on COVID deaths, but the real concern is the increase in deaths of despair like suicide and drug overdoses. In fact, botched COVID policies and the widespread deterioration in mental health that ensued are even largely to blame for exacerbating the issue. The nation's leaders can no longer afford to ignore the drugs, alcohol, and suicide epidemic raging within the pandemic. I have two comments on this uh, story, Melissa. Hit me. One, 
One is, I read an article earlier today that said that U.S. government officials have confiscated this calendar year enough fentanyl to kill every single American. Wow. Um, Wow. So all these, you know, these overdose numbers uh, has something to do with that. Number two is more of an existential uh, question. Have you considered the possibility that that we've kind of peaked and it's more downhill from here? Nah, I don't think so. Fiji's military is called in after a disputed election. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Bloomberg, Al Jazeera, Guardian, BBC News and New York Times. On Thursday, Fiji police requested military assistance to maintain security and stability in the country due to alleged threats against minority groups, just over a week after outgoing Prime Minister Frank Baaini Marama lost power in a general election. The decision was reportedly made after police and military leaders met with Baaini Marama, who has refused to concede defeat. On Wednesday, his Fiji First Party's general secretary stressed he remained as incumbent prime minister and cast doubt on the validity of the internal voting in the kingmaking Social Democratic Liberal Party, or SODELPA. This comes as SODELPA leaders narrowly decided by 16 to 14 to back opposition leader Sitavini Rabuka instead of Baaini Marama forming a tripartite coalition with the People's Alliance Party and the National Federation Party. Outgoing by Ani Marama has served since a 2006 coup, while Rabuka previously served after a 1987 coup before being voted out in 1999. But Ani Marama has won two elections since taking power, legitimizing his rule. The island nation has endured four coups since 1987, mostly stemming from tensions between the Fijian and large Indian minority population. The Constitution was amended in 2013 to remove a race-based electoral system that favored ethnic Fijians, opening the door to free elections. The third election since the 2013 constitutional reforms reintroduced democracy was marred by voting irregularities and allegations of fraud. Five political parties called for recounts after election night anomalies, and Rabuka was questioned by police after calling for military intervention. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on that story. We've got two narrative spins. We'll start with a pro-establishment narrative from the Fiji Times. Despite allegations of electoral fraud, Fijians have much to celebrate as they are looking at the first peaceful transfer of power in their history. Political parties working together for change reflects the will of the people, and this new government will be a momentous occasion for Fijians. It's time to close the book on the tumult and disrespect for the rule of law that has colored politics on this island for too long. Put differences aside and move the nation forward. And the establishment critical narrative comes from the conversation. The reintroduction of democracy should be lauded, but it also opens the door to new causes of strife in the nation. Rabuka and his coalition partners have ethno-nationalist tendencies that could tear open ethnic fault lines in the country. There are reasons to be optimistic, but a transition to democracy is no easy task. It remains to be seen if the former coup leader has the respect for democracy that he claims. So are you familiar with Fiji water? Oh, yes. Delightful square bottled water? (laughs) Yeah, it is pretty. Uh, Are you familiar? Are you familiar with the situation in Fiji about that water? Uh, I'm sure it's not good. 
Yeah. So you know how like some bottled waters are just yeah. tap water and they bottle yeah. it and it's whatever. Yeah. Now it turns out the good news is Fiji water actually is artisanal water from the mountains of Fiji and it's like amazing. Okay. So that's the good news. Fiji okay. water is legit. The bad news is, so they have this unbelievable water spring that creates this great water. They've like cordoned off this water source and now there's not enough water for people who live in Fiji. Oh no. And now all the people in Fiji have to like work in the Fiji factory to be able to afford the water to, to be oh, able geez. to do it. And, uh, They're buying Nestle water back from it's, from Arizona, from, from I mean, Arkansas, which actually does have some nice springs. Again, I encourage, I'm not reporting this, I encourage people to look into this more. This is just my own research that I've done. But, you know, if you're familiar with like Dr. Seuss's The Lorax, that kind of seems like what's going on in Fiji. Uh, <laughs> in our next story, in a trip to the U.S., Zelensky invokes a fight against Nazi Germany. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Newsweek, TASS, and Ukraine Forum. In a whirlwind trip to Washington lasting less than 10 hours on Wednesday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky met with a counterpart Joe Biden, addressed a joint session of Congress, and held individual meetings with senators and members of Congress as he sought to galvanize further U.S. support for Ukraine. The visit came as the U.S. approved a further $1.85 billion in assistance for Ukraine, but was scrambling to approve a $1.7 trillion omnibus spending bill to avoid a government shutdown that will include an extra $45 billion for the war-torn country, a move opposed by some Republican senators. In trying to unite senators, Zelensky thanked every American for the support already provided and said, your money is not charity, but rather an investment in the global security and democracy that we handle in the most responsible way. He also invoked a U.S. victory in the Battle of the Bulge, a turning point against Nazi Germany in World War II. Responding to reports of additional funding for Ukraine, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov labeled the expansion of Western weapon supplies to the country as an aggravation of the conflict and, in fact, does not bode well for Ukraine. Meanwhile, Russian President Vladimir Putin, in a joint press conference with his defense minister and the army's chief of staff, pledged to develop our armed forces and strengthen the capability of our troops. Putin approved measures to change the draft age from those between 18 to 27 to 21 to 30, as well as forming new units to increase the size of its armed forces to 1.5 million. On the ground, Ukrainian attacks on Donetsk killed two civilians and injured 10 others in the past day, pro-Russia officials said. Among those injured were Dmitry Rogozin, a former deputy prime minister of Russia who also led its Roscosmos space agency, as well as Vitaly Kodoshenko, the prime minister of the Donetsk People's Republic. In Russian attacks, one civilian was killed and six more were injured in Kherson, while three people were injured in attacks on Donetsk. Three people were reported injured in Mykolaiv, while two additional injuries were reported in Kharkiv. Thanks for that update, Melissa. We have a pro-establishment narrative from the Associated Press. Continued U.S. financial and military support to Ukraine is essential for it to keep staving off Russian aggression and to ultimately secure Ukraine's sovereignty, freedom, and territorial integrity. The pro-Russia narrative is provided by TASS. Despite repeated Russian warnings, 
The U.S. is continuing to escalate the conflict with its delivery of funds and advanced weaponry. This is increasingly raising the prospects of a wider escalation with unpredictable consequences. We have a cynical narrative on this story as well from anti-war. Multi-billion dollar weapons packages will make little difference in the outcome of the war. The U.S. has been meddling in Ukraine since the end of the Cold War, and what we're witnessing is a geopolitical Ponzi scheme to benefit those aligned with a military-industrial complex. War is a lucrative racket. And there's a nerd narrative from the people at the Metaculous Prediction community. It says there's a 1% chance that NATO will declare a no-fly zone anywhere in Ukraine before 2023. So Henry Ford famously said, uh, if you think you can or if you think you can't, you're right. That's a great uh, quote. Um, if Russia thinks that we're escalating the conflict by giving these weapons to Ukraine or they don't, what they think is what's important, right? Right, right. right. Perception is, is everything in politics, isn't it? A new report claims that the IRS delayed Trump's tax audits. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Breitbart, ABC News, Independent, and The Times Leader. Following a congressional report that found the Internal Revenue Service failed to inspect former President Donald Trump's tax returns, until Democrats pressed for their release, the agency's mandatory audit of presidents and vice presidents' taxes has come under scrutiny. The three-point policy states that individual returns for the president and VP should be filed in an orange folder, kept away from the eyes of IRS agents, and securely locked away when not being reviewed by an examiner. According to the report released by the Democrat-led House Ways and Means Committee, the process, which dates to 1977, was dormant at best during the Trump administration. The report also notes that the IRS only started auditing Trump's 2016 taxes on April 3, 2019, more than two years into his presidency and just months after the Democrats took control of the House. This issue highlights the so-called tax gap, the difference between how much money has been paid to the IRS and how much is owed. Agency data estimates that the gap between 2017 and 2019 stands at $540 billion per year. The report argued that more well-trained agents, forensic experts, tax attorneys, and others were needed to audit presidential taxes as complicated as Trump's. Many Republicans are wary of giving additional resources to the agency. Thank you for that, Scott. We've got, as you might guess, several opposing narratives on this. The Democratic narrative comes from Salon.com. It seems Trump wasn't lying when he said he was under audit during the 2016 election. But while some thought he was hiding nefarious tax evasion, which he still may be guilty of, to the tune of tens of millions of dollars, he was actually afraid of his less-than-masterful business skill being revealed. The IRS is also at fault here, and it's time the agency rebuilds itself to finally go after the rich and powerful. And the pro-Trump narrative comes from Town Hall. This report isn't about holding the IRS or the wealthy accountable. It's about Democrats taking one more baseless jab at nailing Trump before they're out of power in less than two weeks. This is also an attempt to codify the release of any and all public officials' taxes in the future, creating a weapon against political opponents and dissolving the separation of powers between Congress and the White House. 
The U.S. House GOP releases their own January 6 report. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Daily Mail, Fox News, Roll Call, and CNN. On Wednesday, five Republicans denied from serving on the House Select Committee investigating the January 6 riots at the U.S. Capitol released their own 141-page report that focused on alleged security failures. The report claims that administrative mismanagement, including an alleged delayed deployment of the National Guard and political pressures from House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, left the Capitol Police unprepared. Released days after the January 6 committee unveiled an executive summary of its findings and voted unanimously to refer former President Donald Trump to the Justice Department on four criminal charges, the GOP report also accused Democratic leadership of excluding Republicans from key meetings and conversations related to House security. It also claims the incoming head of security for the Capitol complex changed protocol so that analysts no longer conducted proactive social media searches, arguing this left police leadership unaware of many of the threats circulating online. Pelosi has previously denied allegations that she or her office failed to address alleged threats prior to the January 6 riots or prevented the National Guard from deploying. The Republican lawmakers also recommended reforming the U.S. Capitol Police Board and improving congressional oversights on the Capitol Police, ideas that have had bipartisan support in the past. Thanks, Melissa. To the surprise of no one, we have some diametrically opposed political narratives on this story, too. The Republican narrative comes from The Federalist. Not long after Democratic leadership complained about police trying to stop racial riots in the summer of 2020, Democrats once again paved the way for more violence by leaving the Capitol Police ill-prepared for predictable riots at the Capitol. Pelosi's claim that she wasn't in charge that day is false, as the sergeant-at-arms clearly deferred to her and her staff when deciding not to secure the complex. And Mother Jones brings us a Democratic narrative. The GOP report is nothing more than a distraction as those truly responsible for the violence of January 6 are held to account by the House Committee, law enforcement, and other government agencies. Many communications and security leaders in the government were complicit or willfully ignorant of what was going on, but they, just like Trump, will face repercussions. My junior year of high school, in my English class, we had to write a 30-page report. 30 pages. Does that, is that, that's, that's ridiculous, right? That's long. Yeah. What was What's, your report on? I honestly, I have no idea. It was on some book. I don't, I, I literally can't remember. It was a night, it was so long. It was such a grind. What's the longest report you've ever had to write? I blacked out and, and blacked it out of my memory. Yeah, for sure. Netanyahu announces the formation of a new government in Israel. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Fox News, Haratz, Reuters, BBC News, and the New York Times. Benjamin Netanyahu on Wednesday told Israeli President Isaac Herzog that he has succeeded in forming a new government. The announcement signals the return to power of Israel's longest-serving prime minister at the helm of what is reportedly the most far-right coalition in Israel's history. 
Netanyahu's announcement came minutes before a midnight Wednesday deadline and followed weeks of negotiations with far-right coalition partners. The prime minister-designate was unseated in January 2021 over corruption investigations, but his coalition won 64 seats in Israel's 120-member parliament, the Knesset, after Israelis cast ballots on November 1st for the fifth time in four years. The coalition government will be comprised of Netanyahu's Likud party, the ultra-Orthodox Shahs and United Torah Judaism, or UTJ, and the far-right factions Atzma Yehudit, Religious Zionist Party, RZP, and Nome. The new cabinet is due to be sworn in by January 2nd. The new government's composition and reported plans to give Parliament greater powers that could allow it to overrule court rulings have raised concerns both in Israel and abroad, with critics viewing it as a possible blow to the judiciary's independence. Netanyahu's coalition partners are also said to oppose the idea of a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, while the leader of the religious Zionism party advocated the annexation of the West Bank, which Israel occupied along with East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip in the 1967 war. Meanwhile, Netanyahu's agreement to hand over control of parts of the military bureaucracy and security forces in the West Bank to far-right allies is said to have already created tensions with the Israeli military, whose chief of staff expressed fears that the move would disrupt the army's chain of command. Those were the facts, and here's the narrative spin on this story. The New York Times brings us an establishment-critical narrative. To stay in power, corruption-plagued Netanyahu has bowed to the demands of the most extreme elements of Israeli politics. His concessions to ultra-Orthodox and ultra-nationalist parties are a massive blow to Israeli democracy, the rule of law, and thus to the future of Israel. Moreover, by rejecting the two-state solution, the new government is poised to risk fresh Arab-Israeli violence. It's time for Washington to end its ambiguity about Israel and stand up for democracy, as it otherwise does all over the world. And the Times of Israel brings the pro-establishment narrative. Even before the new Israeli government is sworn in, media activists have warned that it posed a media activists have warned that it poses a threat to Israeli democracy. However, these critics ignore the fact that Israel remains the only democracy in the Middle East and that it was the Israelis who wished Netanyahu back in power. Washington should think twice before joining the doomsayers camp and alienating its closest ally in the region. Instead of jumping to conclusions and demonizing the coalition government, the actual political work should be evaluated as it happens. And we have a narrative C from Heretz. Even if everyone seems to agree that Netanyahu would do anything to stay in power and out of prison, the coalition is ultimately an expression of the voters' will. One thing is certain. Given the negative tendencies in Israeli politics, Bibi is the last hope for the survival of liberal Israeli democracy. Now he will have to prove whether he is up to the historic task of keeping Israel from turning into an apartheid state. I don't know. I hear that motley crew of all those different members of this Netanyahu coalition. It feels like it'd be hard to keep everyone together and on the same page. Yeah, it's, it seems like there's a lot of people at this party. A U.N. resolution calls for peace in Myanmar. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Myanmar Now, the United Nations, CNN, Al Jazeera, ABC, and France 24. 
On Wednesday, the UN Security Council demanded Myanmar stop the widespread violence in the country and urged the military junta to free political prisoners, while expressing support for a peace process implemented by the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. The British proposed resolution, which also requested that the Secretary-General or his special envoy on Myanmar provide an oral report to the body by March 2023, was approved in the 15-member body by a vote of 12 to 0, with China, India, and Russia abstaining. This comes almost two years after Myanmar's military took over the country, overthrowing the democratically elected government and arresting civilian leaders such as the deposed state councillor Aung San Suu Kyi and former President Nguyen Myint. Since then, the military junta has cracked down on protests and dissent with lethal force, while the opposition has militarized, launching an armed campaign against the government. At least 2,400 people have reportedly died, and more than 16,000 have been jailed, with 13,000 still detained. The first-ever resolution on Myanmar adopted by the UNSC since the country joined the UN in 1948 allegedly paves the way for holding the military junta accountable, but is reportedly without consequences, as no action has been authorized against the regime. This also marks a moment of relative unity in the UNSC, which has been mired in division, especially since the start of the war in Ukraine, as Beijing and Moscow opted not to veto the resolution following amendments to the wording. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. Zinwanet brings us an establishment-critical narrative. This resolution risks botching efforts to promote peace in Myanmar, both due to its format and content, as it lacks balance and risks antagonizing the junta. There's no quick fix to the Myanmar conflict, and pressuring for an overnight solution can only prolong the crisis, as the Libya issue has shown. And the Sydney Morning Herald brings us a pro-establishment narrative. This historic resolution makes it clear to Myanmar's military junta that the international community will not tolerate human rights abuses against the people of Myanmar and the destruction of the country's democratic institutions. It also endorses ASEAN's central role in solving this crisis and supports its 2021 five-point consensus to restore peace and stability to the country. We also have a narrative C on this story coming from Progressive Voice Myanmar. This resolution indeed lacks any substantive action to stop the military junta from committing atrocities against Myanmar's people because China and Russia have taken the UNSC hostage favoring their junta allies and trade partners. UN member states must take action and impose a global arms embargo and targeted sanctions against the terrorist military regime. FTX associates plead guilty to fraud. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the New York Post, NPR Online News, Wall Street Journal, Fox News, Business Insider, and Time Magazine. On Wednesday, Caroline Ellison, the former CEO of Alameda Research, and Gary Wang, co-founder of crypto exchange FTX, pleaded guilty to several charges, including wire fraud, securities fraud, and commodities fraud. Both Ellison, whose charges collectively carry a maximum prison sentence of 110 years, and Wang, facing up to 50 years, struck a plea deal with the U.S. Department of Justice earlier this week. As part of the plea deals, Ellison and Wang must fully cooperate with investigators, providing them with documents and records, and testifying when asked. 
The government, in turn, will request the judge give them lesser sentences. The surprise guilty pleas came as FTX co-founder and CEO Sam Bankman-Fried was extradited from the Bahamas by U.S. law enforcement to answer charges tied to his role in the company's collapse. Last week, Bankman-Fried was arrested at his home in the Bahamas at the request of the U.S. He has been charged with defrauding customers and investors, money laundering, and making illegal political campaign contributions. Regulators are also investigating him for fraud. Ellison and Wang aren't the first to flip on their former boss. Top FTX executive Ryan Salami reportedly told securities regulators in the Bahamas last month that FTX was transferring customers' assets to Alameda to cover the hedge fund's losses. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on this financial dumpster fire of a story. We've got several spins. The pro-establishment narrative is written by The New Yorker. According to the government's account, Bankman-Fried's corruption was baked into FTX's processes from the very start of its operation. Whether he was dishonest, deluded, or both, the U.S. government is rightfully conducting the most thorough investigation and prosecution of this fraudulent crypto-billionaire. And the New York Times gives us the establishment critical narrative. Both Bankman-Fried and Ryan Salami donated tens of millions to establishment Republican and Democratic politicians and campaign committees. There's a reason for the silence on this issue from both sides of the aisle in Washington. The collapse of FTX exposed the dirty U.S. campaign finance underworld, and the hushed tone from the political elite tells it all. I always find it funny when someone has like a super mundane one of their names and a super yeah. weird other one of their names. Like if it was like, uh, you know, Dimitri Salami is not as funny as Ryan Salami. Like, just, yes. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's like what we said. What was the story on Tuesday that we're, uh, oh, it was Rico. Right. And we were like, that's oh, too yeah. good to be true. Like that was written for them. Yes. It's a little almost on the nose. Yeah. yeah somebody yep. made up this guy. Yeah. <laughs> Asia's meth kingpin is extradited to Australia. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Straits Times, The Sydney Morning Herald, Reuters, BBC News, and Al Jazeera. Australian police said that Sei Shi Lop, Asia's most wanted meth kingpin, had arrived in Australia to face conspiracy to traffic commercial quantities of controlled drugs charges following a legal battle with Dutch authorities. He will remain in custody until his next court appearance in February 2023. Lop, a Chinese-born Canadian citizen, made no application for bail, but his lawyers say he will contest the charges. Lop allegedly ran a multi-billion dollar crime syndicate known as Sam Gore, or The Company, laundering billions in drug money through casinos, hotels, and real estate in Southeast Asia's Mekong region. His 2018 meth revenue is estimated at $8 billion, but could be as high as $17.7 billion. The subject of an Interpol red notice, Lop was detained at Amsterdam's Schiphol Airport in January 2021. According to the Australian police, Sam Gore smuggled massive quantities of methamphetamine, heroin, and ketamine worth millions of dollars into Australia in packs of tea. Australia's charges against Lop relate to specific operations from 2012 to 2013, where about $3 million worth of methamphetamine was trafficked from Melbourne to Sydney. Lop has denied the charges. Lop, dubbed Asia's El Chapo, 
In a nod to Mexican drug lord Joaquin Guzman's nickname, faces life in prison if convicted. All right. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. We have an establishment critical narrative from CNN. High-profile transnational organized drug cartels flourish in the Golden Triangle, the border region between Myanmar, Thailand, and Laos, under the control of competing warlords, drug traders, and militias. Seishi Lop's arrest is unlikely to affect the drug trafficking business in Southeast Asia until governments effectively implement political solutions to the region's decades-long civil war. It's a tall order, but if they don't, another Seishi Lop will soon rise and likely be harder to catch next time. And the pro-establishment narrative comes from Irrawaddy. There's no evidence there are drug kingpins of any significant triad involvement in the drug trade in Southeast Asia. If Seishi Lop were Asia's El Chapo, the high-profile criminal would not have allowed himself to get caught in the public glare. Drug production in the Golden Triangle would have... Drug production in the Golden Triangle would have also suffered blows after his arrest. Since none of that happened, reports about drug kingpins and the massive flow of drugs in Southeast Asia are questionable. The WHO chief is very concerned about COVID in China. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Independent, Associated Press, Guardian, and PBS NewsHour. Director General of the World Health Organization, Tedros Adnam Ghebreyesus said the U.N. agency is very concerned about reports of severe COVID cases across China after the country veered sharply away from its longstanding zero-COVID policy. On Wednesday, in the PRC's latest COVID report, no new fatalities were noted despite nationwide reporting of overloaded medical facilities, crematoriums, and long lines of hearses. Since the onset of the pandemic three years ago, China has reported only 5,241 COVID deaths, a very low count when compared to other less populated countries. A Chinese health official stated that throughout the pandemic, China has only counted deaths occurring from pneumonia or respiratory failure in its official death toll. The tally does not include the deaths of patients with pre-existing conditions. This narrow definition limits the number of deaths being reported. A Chinese respiratory expert through the state media source Global Times said that an increase in deaths may occur in the coming weeks resulting from a spike in cases forecasted to occur in Beijing. Following an outbreak in Shanghai earlier this year, many elderly residents that tested positive for the disease and subsequently died were not counted in the city's official death tally. The deceased family members said that if they had an underlying condition, their cause of death was attributed to the condition and not to COVID. China implemented strict COVID policies shortly after the pandemic began, but has recently eased so-called zero COVID. In addition, China has declined to authorize Western-manufactured mRNA vaccines. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on our final story. The first narrative spin is an anti-China narrative from PJ Media. Though the Western media initially praised China's response to the pandemic, the numbers it reported were simply lies. Now China has almost completely lifted restrictions and cases of the virus have exploded. The Chinese Communist Party is betting they will be more successful at obfuscating the number of lives lost than they were at keeping people locked down with draconian measures. And the Global Times takes us home with this pro-China narrative. China is doing the best it can regarding COVID as the PRC tries to balance economic realities, public health, and societal pressures. 
China has been the world's premier partner in dealing with the pandemic, and it will continue to respond to new COVID-related challenges. There is no need for the international community to worry about this recent COVID surge in China. Beijing will safeguard both health and the economy. Do you remember back in the day when there was like a weird thing where there was like arsenic or strychnine and Tylenol? It was like a big scandal in the late 80s. Was that the Tylenol killer? Perhaps. Tell me more. Well, across from the Second City in Chicago is the Walgreens where the Tylenol killer poisoned the Tylenol. And that's the reason now there's a seal and a cotton ball on top oh, of Oh, really? The I Tylenol. think that is it. So he, in the store, he injected something or did something weird? Yeah, yeah. Sprinkled something in there. Yeah, because it was the 80s. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, December 23rd, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. 